Hey, this is Adrian Hernandez, and welcome to the NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speaker and ask some of the tough and interesting questions you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of our Grand Rounds content can be found at rethinkingclinicaltrials.org. Thanks for joining. Hi, this is Adrian Hernandez, and today we're with uh, Megan Rainey, who will be reflecting on a recent uh, collaboratory Grand Rounds presentation entitled Online Recruitment in the Era of COVID-19, Pitfalls and Progress. Megan, uh, thanks for doing that Grand Rounds, and thanks for joining us in this uh, podcast. It's my pleasure to be here, Adrian. Well, Megan, uh, you've had a lot of attention uh, towards um, trying to make things simple uh, for recruitment of studies in, in COVID-19. And I wonder if you could just share your local experience and how you all have approached it. Absolutely. So we had, like most of us, a number of ongoing studies when COVID-19 hit. We also had a bunch of studies in planning um, when everything shut down. And we used slightly different strategies for those different studies. Um, for the in-person clinical recruitment studies, we honestly stopped recruiting for a bit and then switched to a hybrid model where we did the minimum necessary in person and did the rest of recruitment online. There was one study which we had already planned to do purely online recruitment um, that started just prior to COVID hitting, and that one went absolutely swimmingly. And then we had other studies that were still in the planning stages that we were able to switch to being purely online recruitment. Interestingly, we found slightly different success rates from all three. Um, I think probably just because, you know, when you design a study from the get-go to do remote recruitment and retention, it tends to be a little more effective than when you try to retrofit after the fact. Very true. What, what type of studies were these? Uh, um, can you describe a little bit about the, uh, the so-called phenotype of these, uh, these studies? Absolutely. So one, the one that was uh, in, totally in person prior to the pandemic um, was a large factorial randomized control trial um, where we were recruiting adolescents in the emergency department and then randomizing them to a couple of different interventions and following them um, for about nine months afterwards. Um, the one that was purely online was a simple RCT of an app um, for cyber victimization. Um, we had previously recruited in person and wanted to try out online recruitment because we felt like kids who were spending more time online were also more likely to be cyber victimized. So it was a good place to recruit regardless. Um, and then the third study, the third type of study, uh, we actually have a bunch of them that we're now doing mostly online. Um, one was something that we planned during COVID, um, a survey and uh, mixed methods um, survey plus qualitative study of youth during COVID-19, looking at their kind of resilience and social media use. Um, another one that we'll be starting soon, hopefully, is looking at an app to provide peer support to folks in recovery from opioid use disorder. So it's really a wide variety of different types of trials, ranging from you know, classic RCT through um, uh, cohort or mixed methods. Wow. Uh, so those are not necessarily uh, easy settings or easy topics. Uh, so um, yeah, setting in the ER, uh, um, adolescence, um, uh, difficult uh, issues or topics uh, to test different interventions or strategies. So 
so did you find that um, online recruitment was always easy, always hard, or in between, or depends? So I would say that it depends. You know, we definitely did some playing around with the types of advertisements that we used, the places where we advertised, and the um, strategies for targeting advertisements to the right community. I think that an important part of both online recruitment and retention is being intentional, just as we would be about training of research assistants in the clinical setting, being really intentional about the way that we um, advertise our studies. Uh, In the online um, RCT of adolescents who'd been, who were cyber victims, we actually went through a number of different iterations of advertisement design, pictures, language, placement, uh, to figure out what was most effective, um, which was fun in and of itself. It was like a trial within a trial, right? I think we keep improving, though. Every population, I'm, I'm, we're doing a pilot for another project um, I'm doing with a colleague at University of Colorado, where we're recruiting caregivers of older adults with cognitive decline. And the trial and error process for the advertisements there is very different. What we're learning um, that we need for those caregivers of older adults is very different from what uh, attracts adolescents. So I think my biggest takeaway is just that to to listen to the population that you're trying to recruit. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, you you talk about uh, uh, advertising or engagement of uh, potential participants. What's your approach or or method to make sure that... uh, uh, people understand that here's an exciting opportunity to contribute to the larger good uh, without uh, going over the line of uh, coercion. It's a great question. So there's the question of coercion, but there's also the concern about privacy. There's this concept of ambient privacy in digital interventions, uh, which I first started learning about and thinking about when I was doing work um, with a colleague of mine around HIV and substance use. If you're developing an app uh, for a potentially sensitive topic, you know, this your patient or your participant might be looking at the app when they're riding on the bus or sitting at their parents' house or next to their kids or their grandkids. And so you have to be careful about what someone who's looking over their shoulder might see. That's the concept of ambient privacy. The same thing applies when you're doing social media advertisements to participate in a study. You have to be thoughtful about the pictures and the wording so that it doesn't give away or stigmatize or label someone just because the ad shows up on their feed. Um, And then you also have to be clear that this is research and who's sponsoring it. Um, All of our ads, of course, get approved by our IRB. Um, And then once they click through, making sure that they understand that they are participating in research. And I and many others across the country right now are, are doing some interesting work looking at how that online consent process works. You know, REDCap obviously has created some nice modules for allowing remote signature, but we found, for instance, that we feel more comfortable if we ask our participants questions to make sure that they understand the key parts of the study before letting them assent or consent. And so we've built that into um, the process once people click through the ad to make sure that the folks that are enrolling actually comprehend um, what they're agreeing to. The last part is that when you're advertising on social media, there's a risk of bots, particularly if you offer an incentive for enrollment. 
And so we've put some pretty strict precautions in place to try to avoid those. Um, not just like the recapture, which we're all used to clicking the box to say, I'm not a robot, but some more complex things too, like asking um, folks to do calculations, um, do asking confirmatory questions about things that they will have read uh, to make sure that it's actually a real person who's doing the study. Well, that's very um, interesting. I think it's really important to think about you know, the environment uh, that uh, digital methods allow people to go. And so it's not just you know in the privacy of your home or the privacy of a, uh, of a waiting room uh, or a, an exam room. Last question. Uh, so there's so much um, interest or hype around digital methods for research. In the, the coming years, uh, do you think it will be the, the cure-all or uh, where do you see its role? I see digital clinical trials or just clinical digital clinical studies in general as falling in the same category as digital health, which I spend a lot of time working on, but which I see as an adjunct. It's another tool in our toolbox. It can extend our ability to recruit uh, diverse populations, folks that may not come to tertiary care clinics because of geography or cost, folks that may live um, with stigma around their condition, folks that may face other structural barriers to recruitment and retention in trials. So I think there's a great potential for digital uh, recruitment and retention expanding who we can engage and keep in research and who we can provide the benefits of research to. But I don't see it as a wholesale substitute, just as I don't see digital health in general as being a wholesale substitute for us as physicians or nurses or social workers, right? It's an adjunct, it's an add-on. It makes our work easier and better, um, and it makes our patients' lives, more importantly, easier and better. Um, but there are times where that in-person touch is needed, whether it's in the research space or in the clinical space. I do hope that we're going to have better online recruitment and retention and trial methods going forwards. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting over the next year or two to watch us all define what best practices are for different types of populations. I could imagine, for instance, that online recruitment really becomes the norm for some rare diseases where the process of in-person recruitment is just so time-consuming and expensive and difficult. And by engaging with rare disease forums, you can get a cross-section of patients who might be more interested in participating in research. There may be other conditions where online recruitment gives you a biased sample that's not like what you would get in real life. Um, and for those, we'll still rely on in-person recruitment. Uh, there may be other studies still where we're going to do a hybrid. Um, I'm doing one project where we recruit kids in the emergency department and enroll them in a cohort study where we look at social media use, um, self-reported mood and experiences of violence. We get audio recordings, um, little snippets of their day, um, and also get some ecological momentary assessments. And that's a great example of a hybrid study where that first touch is going to be mostly in person, but the rest of the study is going to happen through a mix of in person and even more so online um, in ways that we wouldn't have necessarily thought about doing pre-COVID. Well, uh, Megan, uh, those are excellent points. And uh, thanks for having this conversation with us on this uh, podcast. 
it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on and thanks for hosting these collaboratory grand rounds. It's a great service to all of us. Great. And we look forward to the continued work that you and your group are leading, um, trying to make sure that we really understand uh, both the pitfalls and, and progress and how to uh, fill in the gaps uh, with uh, online recruitment and other digital methods, taking the lessons learned from COVID-19 and going beyond. And thanks, everyone, for joining us uh, for this podcast. Uh, please join us for our next podcast as we continue to highlight interesting areas uh, that are changing the research world. Thanks for joining today's NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Let us know what you think by rating this interview on our website. And we hope to see you again on our next Grand Rounds, Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time.